Welcome to Anecdotal Evidence, the podcast created by the American Institute of Dental Public Health to generate conversations around emerging public health topics like leadership, collaboration, and cultural responsiveness. I'm your host, Annalise Cothran. On this week's episode, we explore evidence-based practices for public health research from the perspective of Dr. Robert Wyant and Dr. Michael Meckert. Bob Wyant is the Associate Dean of Dental Public Health and Community Outreach at Pittsburgh School of Dental Medicine. Bob is also the editor of the Journal of Public Health Dentistry and noted scholar of evidence-based practice, having been recognized by the American Association for Dental Research with the Evidence-Based Dentistry Faculty Award. Mike Mackert is the director of the UT Austin Center for Health Communication, holding cross appointments at the Department of Population Health in the Dell Medical School, and the Stan Richards School of Advertising and Public Relations at the Moody College of Communication. As director of CHC, he actively employs evidence-based strategies to increase effective health communication. He is also the author of over 100 peer-reviewed articles in the book, Designing Effective Health Messages. Here's what Bob and Mike had to say about evidence-based practice. So we're starting the conversation here today in Anecdotal Evidence with Mike Mackert and Bob Wyant. Thank you both for joining me today. We're really excited to learn more about evidence-based strategies and how you both approach them in your line of work. So we'll start with you, Mike. How do you view evidence-based practice at the UT Austin Center for Health Communication? Yeah, um, the idea of being evidence-based is really important to us. Uh, you know, in, in a lot of our work, doing work with colleagues in medicine and public health and a variety of health uh, health fields, you know, the idea of being evidence-based in communication is pretty new to them. They've often come to, whether they're a doctor or a nurse or whatever it is, a lot of times they've learned communication kind of from a mentor or in practice. And the perception can be that communication is sort of this soft, squishy skill that either you're good at or you're not, and hopefully you're a good mentor. And our center is really dedicated to the idea that you can study health communication and there's a, a best way to break bad news and we can study that and train you in that and you can get better than that. And so we, we spend a lot of time um, working with partners to help them understand kind of the evidence base of health communication and why making data-based decisions on kind of communication interventions is essential to kind of success over time. Yeah. And I know whenever you and I first met, you know, being a public health researcher, specifically in dental public health, that was the first thing that popped into my mind about the work that you do is I have been doing health communication for a really long time, and we have never taken the evidence-based strategies that you guys do at CHC. Yeah, and it's it just, it's... Sometimes I think it's a willingness to be proven wrong by your own data. Um, and so, you know, I teach my students this. And even last week, they were doing a presentation. And this one team came in with a particular idea. And they, they pre-tested it and found out they were wrong. And then they just went in a new direction. And so I think in a lot of communication, it's easy to be like, oh, I'm, I'm right. Or I have this assumption. I'm just going to pursue that. And part of doing kind of the evidence-based health comm work that we do is a willingness to kind of be proven wrong by your own data and then, of course, correct and not become too attached to an idea that's not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of the crux of uh, data-driven decision-making, right? So that's a huge piece of evidence-based practice is following where the data takes us. So what about you, Bob? Can you explain your evidence-based approaches as a public health dentist? Yeah. So my thinking around what people, particularly dentists, need to know to be functioning as uh, evidence-based practitioners has changed a lot over the years. 
And what it started, it started uh, sort of in the classic model that we still teach in every dental school and medical school, which is the individual patient care model of evidence-based practice. And I realized over the years um, that um, we suffered from problems with our dissemination and our implementation of evidence. And when you ask dentists how they like to get information, they say two things. I like to talk to colleagues who I trust, and I like to go see gurus talk, you know, famous dentists sure. who will on a continuing education class. Right. So neither of those are guaranteed to be good quality, evidence-based driven communications, but that's where dentists go. So the question then is, how do we get that format, what they tell us they like, to be appropriately supported by, by high quality evidence and drive them into the good educational uh, venues as opposed to ones where maybe it's not as good. So yeah. that's where we're, we're working in that area now. And it's um, challenging. Sure. Yeah. And you actually brought up a, a good point. And it's almost like you were sneaking a peek at my notes here because you brought up the the topic of implementation science and translational science, which essentially means how can we put evidence based practice into an applied setting? So a clinical practice or a community based intervention. And really, that's why we do the research right? So that we can apply it in some way. Um, and so the last article that I read that had this figure was that it takes on average 17 years for an evidence-based strategy to be put into, you know, broadly put into, widely disseminated into uh, a clinical practice or some sort of applied setting. A colleague recently told me it was closer to 15 years. I haven't been able to find that number, but 15, 17, not a huge difference. Uh, is this appropriate? Is is this where we need to be in terms of implementation and translation? Bob, well, what do you I'll, think? I'll, I'll, <laughs> that, that's a very famous quote, right? 17 right? years. And it's, it's probably, um, I mean, I think it comes from a specific study in the mid 2000s somewhere, but it's probably extremely contextually dependent. It depends on what intervention you're putting in and what population and what setting. So there's going to be a lot of variability about that number. But my basic, when people say, why does it take so long? I, I basically say, because we have to wait for the old people to retire before the new <laughs> thinking comes in. Because people, especially people long into their career, are very challenged to change their thinking and their right. clinical behavior. So uh, one of the footnotes of, there's several articles about that. And one of them is, um, it was discussing physicians. It said physicians get essentially build a toolbox of skills and, and knowledge in their residency, and they're very loath to change that for the rest of their professional lives. Right. It really is a hard lift to get somebody to do something completely different once they've 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 spent the you know the cognitive energy to learn it and practice it and and become good at it, and all of a sudden you say you know there's a better way to do that. They go, yeah, eh, not so much, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a struggle. So your thought is that it's a struggle to get the change implemented because we've learned how to do it a really specific way and change is hard, right? Well, I so where my thinking has really changed is on the uh, return on investment in um, teaching people evidence-based practice. And okay. I, I don't want to sound overly pessimistic about this, but my sense is if you want people to change the most efficient way is not to go in and teach them one at a time how to read the science and do you know do the classic sort of evidence-based model. It's to change the system in which they work such that it facilitates that change. I like and that's that. That's what we, believe yeah. we need to work. So yeah. when I talk about implementation, I'm talking about system-level interventions that 
make it easier for people to change to the behavior you want. Yeah, and I would say, Mike, um, having worked with you for a couple of years now, I think this is something that CHC actually does really well, is turning that research into how you can apply it and apply it effectively. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things when, when Bob, as Bob was talking that kind of came to mind is one of the issues, you know, whether whatever your health profession is, you know, you learn a lot about doing that health profession, all the, all the knowledge and skills you need. Um, communication a lot of times isn't really built into the curriculum in any way, um, and, but you have professionals who know a lot about health issue and like, you know, they're humans and so they assume they're good at communication. And so we did, we did workshops years ago on sort of health literacy and clear communication. And one of the items we put at the end of the kind of post-training survey was an item that was something along the lines of like, I originally overestimated my knowledge of these issues and yeah. kind of the skills. And the, the score was like a six point something out of seven, like all, and it was a range of different kind of healthcare workers. And, you know, they all came in and being like, oh, another training about a stuff, something I already know how to do. And then when we really, when they really were taught about health literacy and clear communication and those things, then it was like, oh, I actually didn't know anywhere near what I thought I did. And so right. one of the ways that we, that we spent a lot of time working on is kind of like, how do you, and in that kind of setting, like how do you make people kind of consciously incompetent? Like how can you help them understand the things they don't know, and that can open them up in certain ways, I think, to kind of learning some new skills and things that, um, but that, that's a trick to get people to kind of acknowledge something that they're they're not as good at as they probably thought they were, you know, two hours ago or whatever it might have been. So, oh, yeah. I, I love that term, consciously incompetent. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> can you maybe, I really love hearing your stories because you, you have so many different, um, seems like you and CHC, you have your foot in the door in so many different areas around uh, public health. Can you maybe share an example, I know I'm putting you on the spot, of, of something that you've done done really well around that translational and, imp and implementation type of work where you really saw a need, you were able to research it, and then sort of quickly use that evidence into an application? Sure. Um, and this wasn't using published data or anything, but the example that really springs to mind is, you know, because of the work that we do, we're never, we are never the experts in the health issue. Like we have partners who are experts in the health issue. And part of the value we offer is kind of coming in with fresh eyes and thinking about the issue, basically like a normal person thinks about it not the way someone who does it 24 seven thinks about it. And right. So we were doing some work with, with WIC years ago and they want us to come in and kind of look at their materials and, and take some lessons learned about around retention and engagement with WIC clients. And one of the things when we asked, we asked a bunch of current WIC participants to send us pictures of their, their days and kind of what WIC meant to them. And there was a remarkable number of people who sent in pictures of parties. Oh, wow. We just, we, did, we didn't see that coming. We were like, huh, this is sort of, like there were others that we kind of saw coming, but like that was just interesting. And so right. when we got to go back to them, we said, look, like a, like a lot of people, when we asked them to send pictures of what it was with me to them, it's pictures of parties and your current materials never show that. And so yeah. there's this disconnect between the kind of the evidence and the lived experience of someone who is receiving a kind of, is, is kind of a WIC client and getting that kind of support and assistance that they really value and the way WIC is communicating with that audience. And so we got to kind of go back and say like, hey, we're hearing this a lot. Your materials should reflect that and you should embrace that as like a way, like an association people are making with WIC. And I was talking at their summer conference like six months later and I mentioned that story. And one of the people who works for WIC is like, you're the reason we got this. Like they had something <laughs> that came down the system where it's like when you're building new materials, like this is a visual to consider including when it makes sense because yeah. it will create that engagement with the client. And so it was a very kind of, 
data-based recommendation on how they could improve the visual style right. that then they could kind of put into real practice that presumably would lead to kind of the outcomes they're hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I really love that approach. I, and I think too, it, it, it lends an element of storytelling to support your evidence. So I know that uh, as a health communicator, we should not just apply numbers to everything because people don't get numbers, but people get people, right? Yep. So it seems like that's something that you you strive for at CHC. Yeah, one of the tools I'll, I always give my students, and this is in any advertising class, so whether we're selling, you know, dish soap or cars or pizza or, you know, a public health issue, we always, I always ask my students to build kind of a persona of their target audience. And so we're not aiming at, you know, young men and fraternities on the UT Austin campus. It's like, nope, we're aiming, we're aiming for Josh, who's a sophomore in the business school and he's in Sigma Nu and, and like really draw the rich picture of that person you're trying to reach. And it makes it a lot easier to think about a message that's gonna work on them. And that's so we, for basically everything we do, we're kind of building that persona of the target audience we're aiming for. Right. That makes it easier then to reach all the people who are a lot like that person. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think both of you have touched on the need for data-driven strategies, for reviewing the literature and how you're going to implement it. But it also, uh, in this day and age, this is a big question mark in my mind, is there has been a, a huge rise in pseudoscience and what we label as predatory journals. So, um, you know, the typical peer review process is that you submit an article, you do, well, first you do the research, then you, then you write it up, then you submit it to a journal and a panel of your peers who have some sort of expertise in that area would review your work, provide feedback, and then decide whether or not this is uh, going to benefit the greater scientific community. So that's how the peer review process is supposed to work, has worked for many years. Um, but now, you know, in the age of the internet, we have lots of pseudoscience. We have lots of, of predatory journal, predatory journals uh, and how I understand them and how I would describe them is you can essentially pay to just get your, your journal, uh, to get your article published or, um, you know, it's peer reviewed, but the process is uh, questionable. So Bob, I know you are the uh, editor of the Journal of Public Health Dentistry. And so in this age of wanting to promote evidence-based practice and knowing that there is a questionable methodology out there around evidence-based practice, how do you combat that as a researcher, uh, as a practitioner? And then maybe you could go into a little bit of how the Journal of Public Health Dentistry deals specifically with this issue. Right. Well, the peer review process obviously is our first line of defense against nonsense. Um, but it, as you implied, you can distort that as some of these predatory journals do and pretend to do peer review and not do it. So it sort of looks like you're doing real science, but you're not. Um, so I, I don't know, you may or may not, but I get at least six or seven invitations a week through my email to submit things to journals that I've never heard of. And, and half the time they're not even for journals, you know, the Journal right. of Engineering and, you know, farming right. or so. They're just blasting these things out there, to, you know. <laughs> and, and uh, so there was a great study, I don't know, a couple years ago where somebody submitted just absolute nonsense to one of these journals and it, it flew in and then they, you know, 
they they um, you know revealed that what they had written was was absolutely ridiculous and it flew in. So so that was one of the first things to call attention to this. But it it's getting worse. Is about all I can say is um, you have to be as a as a consumer of of evidence of of science. You have to be very careful where you get your evidence, and. Um, that's one of the skills we want people to understand is not all evidence is created equal and there are ways in which you can learn how to evaluate that and rank it and sort it and what different kinds of biases exist. And that's really on the consumer's end. The, the journal itself, my job as editor is to make sure that only the highest quality information gets published and that's uh, what I try to do. Do you feel as though the peer-reviewed system is still trusted i mean you reference something that it's i just bob you're just reading my notes for me because you reference something that i came across and this has been happening for years right so i think the first incident that i came across was 1996 where someone submitted something to a peer-reviewed journal it was utter nonsense it got through i mean i just read this in 2018 and i i like to read the title because it's very interesting this was submitted to the journal of gender place and culture and the study was dog parks are petri dishes for canine rape culture. And the article suggests that training men like dogs could reduce cases of sexual abuse. So I'm reading that and thinking this is utter nonsense, but this passed a peer review process. So how, yeah. you know, this is sort of twofold. Number one is the peer review process. Is it still doing its job? And then number two, when there isn't a peer review process, are consumers really able to pick out what is nonsense and what isn't? I, I Can you answer that very bold question, Bob? <laughs> yeah, I don't think every person is equipped to do that. And I think right. it's probably a failing at the level of secondary school where we don't teach critical thinking and we don't teach hmm. the kinds of things that people need to be just you know, functioning in a, in a plural, pluralistic society where they need to make decisions about all kinds of things. And, and, and to our, you know, to our overall um, social detriment, we don't do that. If I could jump in, the, the thing yeah. that makes me think about too, in terms of how you train people, I mean, even peer review done well as an author often feels semi-random. I mean, we, yeah. I just like within the last week, we, were, we got reviews back and it's like, oh, you should have a table that is X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, that table was already in the article. And so <laughs> helping and given kind of this replicability crisis that we hear about in a lot of different fields, I think even training, whether it be the future scientists or more of a clinical audience who's consuming that evidence, hopefully, to be sort of critical thinkers about the stuff that they're reading and like, like understand the methods and understanding that like, even the stuff in a good journal is sometimes maybe not going to be right over time, like helping them make sense of, of that. And the way science progresses over time is like all these little incremental nudges along the way that sometimes contradict each other, I think is, right. is part of a training that probably is, I think, upset starts a lot younger than by the time as someone is in some health profession program. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm interested to hear your approach, Mike, and, and what the work CHC does around potentially combating some of this bad information that's out there. Um, because consumers, I'll use, you know, very common in, in, in public health fluoride and vaccines, we see a lot of bad information. You know, we see consumers trusting the wrong science. And so when they're looking to make critical decisions about their health, how do you and your team approach approach uh, from a health communication standpoint? Well, and this is where, you know, the, the the calm side of me and the public health side of me probably collide a little bit because sometimes part of it is you have to accept there's people you aren't going to reach with a communication effort. 
Um, I have, we do a lot of projects on campus with, you know, high risk drinking prevention in a, in a class project. And there's always at least one or two teams that are gonna go after like really high risk drinking behaviors and audiences that like as people they want to reach and stop that behavior. And I always have to kind of push them to think about is, is an ad or is some communication piece really gonna stop like the person leading the keg stand at the party? Like is sure. any message gonna work on that person or how do we pick audiences where a communication effort can really change their attitudes or norms or all those things to help them change their behavior? So at least a part of it is as a communication person, accepting like in advertising, there's some people who are never gonna buy a BMW or like whatever the thing is, we aren't gonna try to convince everyone to do that. And so for a lot of health issues, I think it's a willingness to think about who can we reasonably reach and get to change their behavior and and not feel like we have to develop a thing that's going to work for everyone because I don't that's often not going to be possible. Yeah, so so you know, using the and, example of fluoride or vaccines, the people who are anti-fluoride, we're not going to change their minds. So we need to focus potentially on the ones that are still making decisions about those uh, particular health topics and trying to educate them on evidence-based interventions. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, very much so. And so with the idea of like water fluoridation is a really interesting example because for, for most people, unless you are in oral health, public health, like unless that's your world, most people do not think about water fluoridation very much, probably at all. Mm-hmm. And so you could imagine there's a moment of intervention around um, when a couple comes pregnant. Right. Like we're all of a sudden you are health motivated on a whole range of health issues, whether that be vaccination or water fluoridation or, or all this stuff. Like where it's like, oh, I got to care about all kinds of new stuff. And in a lot of ways, they're probably a pretty blank slate. And so like, that's a moment at which you can get some people who aren't already like super anti-fluoride, super pro-fluoride, like those, those people are in their camps and we're not changing their minds. But like, how can we think of people at a moment where you really can reach them with the right information and change their behavior um, is I think a part of doing that work well. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and Bob, I always think about this too, in terms of educating our future clinicians. And so AIDPH does a lot of work around um, advanced dental education students. And so you as an educator, educating future dental public health uh, uh, clinicians or dental public health workforce, how do you approach this strategy and teaching them how to communicate with their patients from an evidence base, from an informed perspective? So... (laughs) The, the model that I, I adapt for, for explaining this is, I don't know if you're familiar with Roger's model of diffusion of innovation, but it's, mm-hmm. a, you know, it's a bell-shaped curve, and on one end are the early adopters, and at the other end are the laggards, and, and I explain that this is, this is a feature of personality. This is not something that's easily changed. So you know, the early adopters, you merely have to mention something and they're off and running with it. And others, no matter what you do, they're going to sit there and say, you know, they distrust this uh, and they don't, they're not going to change. So I, I guess it's an empirical question. And Mike, you probably know better than I that are, you know, each of these people along this continuum of, of, of willingness to change need to be approached with different strategies. And so when I talk to patients about, or to students about communicating with patients, um, and I'm not a health health behavior type person, that's not my background, but there are some in my department and we know what, uh, you really have to adapt your message in a way that uh, is appropriate in a sort of a transaction. You're, you're, You're giving them some information, they're feeding you back what they hear, you're giving it back to them. And if you don't, you know, if you think that what you've said is clear 
about half the time you're going to be completely wrong because people just receive things in a different way. Sure. Well, and Mike, you brought up something really interesting um, about replicability. And this was something that I had thought about in relation to evidence-based strategy and implementation. Uh, because, you know, through my education, which I had a very uh, research-heavy um I had a I had a very research heavy education. And so we were taught that replicability was the last piece of the scientific uh, the scientific approaches that you were supposed to replicate your data. That's how you build an evidence base is through replication. But I think in today's day and age, what is driving our research, frankly, is funding, right? So it's supposed to work where I have a really good strategy and I'm going to find a funder that can support this strategy. So that's how it's supposed to work, right? But we all know here as researchers, as academicians, as nonprofits, that what really happens is here's a request for proposal. Now I'm going to find something that fi that fits that funding strategy because we're all, you know, in public health, we're often working on shoestring budgets. So how do we marry those two things? How do we ensure that we have replicability? Do you feel like this is something that's still needed? How do we fund replicability? How do we kind of approach this as a community of researchers and, and public health advocates? Um, I mean, I guess to me, a, a big part of solving it, because I think changing funding models is probably a slightly longer term effort. I think on the on the publishing side, a willingness of journals to see the value in publishing replications or failed replications feels really important. We I years ago I heard some NPR story and it was some um, it was like an Empire Science Friday segment on something. I heard the article, I'm like, nope, don't believe it. Um, like I just didn't believe the study and what they were talking about. So we actually mm -hmm. went out and replicated it here on campus in a slightly different version and actually I would argue used better methods to do so and we found that the original <laughs> study didn't work. And then we sent the journal that published the original study. They wanted nothing to do with it. We sent it to another journal that was like, well, of course you didn't find anything. Why would you? I'm like, well, because we're trying to like replicate something that didn't work right. right. And so getting that article published was actually really hard. Um, and like it, it was a very personal lesson in the the lack of perceived value in doing replications. And, it, and we actually found the exact opposite of what the original folks found. And so wow. it wasn't even like, we, on the same thing. It was like, no, we showed they're not right. right. We should keep this and see who is really right. But like, we sure feel like we did a better version of their study and found the opposite. And that was really hard to publish. The other thing, I just want to jump back to something Bob was talking about with kind of diffusion because it got me very excited as a mass communication research nerd. Uh, there's actually a version of uh, an extension of Roger's work called Critical Mass Theory by a guy named Marcus. And it was developed in the context of like copy machines and stuff. And so for it was in the context of communication technology. Like no one wants to buy the first fax machine. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do you a lot. And so the thing he added to Rogers's work was like facilitating, like how do systems facilitate adoption of something where you need a lot of people to adopt the thing before it's worthwhile. And right. it reminded me a little bit of Bob's earlier point about building systems that kind of promote evidence-based kind of adoption of a practice like this. And so I think that for folks who want to think about how you make that happen, like it's just more proof of why the, the systems-based approach is really important because otherwise thinking you're just going to effectively communicate with every single person to get these things adopted is a really, it's a hard thing to do the work only that way. Right, right. So, so to your first point, I'm hearing that what you're suggesting is that journals uh, support the replication um, of important research. And you know what? It just so happens that we have an editor 
of an evidence-based journal. So Bob, what do you think about that? So replication is one of those things that um, it's sort of a, a foundational principle of science, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we really need to stress the importance of that. Uh, there's two things that are impacting publishing right now. Replication being one on the genetic side, you cannot publish a, uh, a genetic study unless you replicate it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, the journals just don't want to see it because there's too much, um, you know, chance findings and, you know, because there's so many variables. Um, and then replication. So as I'm particularly sensitive to replication in my journal because we get a, uh, I don't know, we get a lot of submissions from folks that are primarily um, abroad out of the U.S. who don't have a underlying um, source of or at least a high quality source of funding like NIDCR in the US. So they're doing a lot of research on a shoestring and several things are happening. One is that their research is, tends to be small scale and it tends to be a replication of things that maybe um, are already settled. We, we pretty much have the science settled on that. Mm -hmm. So what I look for when I, when I look at articles that are coming in is replication is important, but if it's something, it's if it's the 101st paper on 100 papers that have shown this, yeah, we don't need that one. But if it's the second paper to come in on this topic, and the first one was pretty interesting and controversial, we definitely need that one. Right. So it's an arc of, of research that, that any area of research goes through where, you know, the first finding in this area is interesting and it'll rush into publication because nobody expected that. And then at that point, people are, are eager to look for, well, we need some people to replicate this or, or disprove it. And, and so then the next bunch of studies will kind of quickly come in. And then after a while, you start to go, well, if they're all pointing in the same direction, okay, this is getting less and less interesting with each paper. Right. But if there's a lot of controversy and they're bouncing around, then you need something to break the tie. And so, so it, it tends to continue on that way. I'd like to give you guys uh, the floor in case there's anything else around evidence-based that we didn't uh, discuss today that you thought was important or to elaborate on before we close out for today. So, Mike, any last thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Um, I think the only other thing I'd add is that, and again, this comes from a lot of experience working on a range of health issues with, with really bright colleagues, is the understanding that persuasion is not a dirty word. And I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, I, I work with, for example, nursing students and they'll take a health comm class and they'll talk about the fact they feel like they've kind of been trained to educate people in the submission. And like, if only you knew for the 400th time, you know, X, Y, and Z would help you manage your diabetes. Well, of course, that's going to, you know, change behavior. And so the understanding of the thing that might motivate kind of a health behavior change, for example, is not necessarily the actual health issue that like we, the person who cares about the health issue cares about. It could be something really different. It could be the ability to, you know, be physically active and take a grandchild to the park or like there's just a lot of things that can motivate people to change their behavior. And so it, it's we have to, I think, be willing to embrace the fact that what's going to motivate someone isn't necessarily like the intrinsic health issue that we care about a lot as public health folks. Bob, what about you? Is there anything that we can uh, that you'd like to address before we go today? Well, one of the things that I think uh, I'm trying to get formally into the curriculum is um, at the very proximate level of, of, of communication, we have a, a patient and a clinician, and you're trying to impart something useful, some evidence-based information that ultimately will result in a behavior change. I mean, that's sort of what, what we're trying to do in most of these communication interactions. Thank you, guys. This was great. Right. I really appreciate it. 
A big thank you to Dr. Wyant and Dr. Mackert for joining us today on Anecdotal Evidence. I appreciate their help at contributing to the mission of AIDPH to advance the science and education of dental public health. AIDPH supports evidence-based scholarship through our Dental Public Health Virtual Resource Center on our website, www.aidph.org. We've carefully curated almost 2,000 articles on over 40 topics to help you find resources on almost any topic related to dental public health. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Anecdotal Evidence. If you did, head over to iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play and give us feedback on our podcast series, including any topics you think we should cover. I'm your host, Annalise Cothran, and I'll see you next week.